I had been thinking um, in the weeks leading up to this retreat, uh, knowing particularly that uh, I would be giving the talk on Thanksgiving, that perhaps uh, this would be the hardest year of all the 16 years that we've had this retreat over Thanksgiving to talk about gratitude. It's been a very complicated few months leading up to this retreat. And I thought it might be the hardest time to talk about gratitude and thanksgiving. And I think it will turn out to be, um, in some ways, the easiest of all. Um, when Guy talked last night, he talked about the nature of mind, being brilliant and pure, innately and inherently good, inclined to compassion, We've seen so much since September 11th of the response of compassion uh, towards people that are even far away from us, that we don't know. In Germany, a quarter of a million people came out for a prayer vigil in one place, either Frankfurt or Berlin, I'm not sure, but 250,000 people came together in a prayer vigil for people on the other side of the earth whom they didn't know, because that's what human hearts do. They feel moved by other people in their struggle and in their pain. So what it becomes most clear that I can talk about and be grateful for is I'm incredibly grateful that we have a human heart that's capable of grieving and capable of loving enormously. You know, the it's part of Buddhist lore to think about uh, the preciousness of a human birth and how it's described as uh, being really such a precious and rare event that the likelihood of a human birth is about the same as the likelihood of a giant sea turtle, the only sea turtle in the whole world, giant sea turtle circling under all the seas of the whole earth that sticks its head up above the water only once every hundred years, and that on all the seas and all the oceans of the whole earth, there's just one ring, like a life buoy, that's out there floating around on all the oceans of the earth. Once every hundred years, this one turtle sticks up his head, and the likelihood that that turtle will stick his head up through that one loop is the likelihood of a human birth. So rare and so precious. I think it's rare and it's precious because amongst all animals we have the capacity to love and to mourn, to remember, to celebrate. We care with particularity about the people with whom we are in connection. We can learn new things, we can invent, we can create. We can do things that the people before us didn't know how to do. It's an incredible thing, a human mind, and it's an incredible thing, a human heart. It can touch people in empathic response and feel their feeling and rejoice with them and grieve with them. It's an incredible thing, a human birth and a human heart. Sometimes we remember and we celebrate particular births and deaths communally because we know about them. Today is November 22nd. It's the earliest Thanksgiving in a very long time. 
And it is the death day of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Probably most of us can remember where we were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. We remember probably the human parts of that picture. We remember the fact that his son, John Jr., was three years old. We probably remember what he was wearing when he stood at attention, actually saluting while the casket with his father went by. Probably remember that. We remember what his widow looked like. We probably all remember the stories of the whole life of Jacqueline Onassis after that, and her death, and the death of John Jr. And so a whole life happened in a story that we communally know amongst a whole world of stories that we don't communally know, but also begin in a life and end in a death and have all kinds of things happen in between. And the people in this room who are very young might not remember it, that event of John Kennedy's death as viscerally perhaps as those of us who were adults. Perhaps they remember it, or my grandchildren will certainly remember that as a history book event, the way I remember that John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln. I wasn't there. I don't feel it, but I know about where it was, and I know about it. But And sometimes when we think about famous people that we remember in a certain way, we remember what was their wisdom, what was the way that they were, or what do we imagine was their wisdom. So we think about, for instance, Abraham Lincoln, and then we know the Gettysburg Address. And then we think about his message of freedom and liberation. I was thinking about it and thinking about the lines in the Gettysburg Address uh, that charge us, it is rather for us the living, to continue the work that the people here who died have thus far so nobly endured. That it is up to us to continue the work of liberation, I take away from that. That it's up to us to do something in our lives that credits a vision of freedom that other people had. That's the only way that we hallow lives. We take the wisdom that we get from them and live it into the, into the future. We become the carriers of wisdom, all of us. If I think about John Kennedy, we will all remember his inaugural address where he said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. What will you take and do into the future? How will you take this wisdom and live it into the future? What I really wanted to talk about today is that we don't know everyone communally. We don't have communal memory of each other's family. We have communal memory of public figures. But I really think that everyone's life is in its own way an extraordinary act of heroism. Everybody, ordinary people, have a unique life, exactly their own. Ordinary people, when they pay attention, have that same vision of the need to liberate, the need that everyone be free, that no one be subjugated, that there's a way to live well, celebrate life, even that it passes. Even people who didn't go to school, even people who don't have a labeled spiritual practice, 
the 22nd of November is also my grandfather's birthday. If my grandfather were alive, he would be 119 years old today. <laughs> but nobody knows him except me and my husband. My grandchildren have heard about him. They're his great-great-grandfather. His name was Ephraim Fischel Fuchs, and he was born on the 22nd of November, 1882, in Austria, the eighth of nine children. If I tell you five sentences about his life, you'll know something about him, and you'll feel his life. It's the eighth of nine children. He lived on a farm. They were desperately poor. And when he was 25 years old, and he heard about the possibilities of living in America, couldn't read, he couldn't write, he didn't know a trade, but he decided to go to America and he uh, told his family in a way that uh, came to me last night as Guy was talking about Ajahn Sumedho's uh, wisdom of being able to see things and say, it's like this. And when you know it's like this, there's no fuss about it. He went to his family and he said, it's like this, I'm going to America. There are two choices. You can either become distressed and make my leaving difficult for all of us, or not, in which case it won't be difficult. But it's like this, I'm going. And he went. And they didn't make it difficult. And he never saw them again, ever. And he came to the United States, and uh, he met my grandmother two years later and married her, and my mother was born a year later than that. He had three daughters. And uh, the middle one, my Aunt Sylvia, died when she was six years old. He was about 35. His wife died young. He married again. That wife died. My, my mother died in her mid-40s. That was terrible for him. He outlived a third wife. Died when he was 98 years old. And the only business that he ever went into with his nephew went bankrupt. And he was really, uh, and remains, a wisdom figure of my childhood, because he paid attention. Couldn't read, and he couldn't write, and he didn't go to school. He never heard of the Buddha, but he paid really close attention to his life. And I think that that's really what we're practicing here, this practice of paying attention. So he, there, I want to tell you three wisdom statements of his. The first one he would say in response to a challenge, uh, uh, some desperate challenge in his life, maybe the death of my mother or the death of someone else in the family or one of his wives or um, some setback. He would grieve mightily, didn't pass over him. He cried. He's one of the few men that I knew that cried. He would cry, and then he would put himself together and pull himself together. He would take a great big breath in, and he'd say, well, what are you going to do? That's life. <laughs> that is an incredible wisdom statement. That really is the first noble truth, is it not? Life is extremely difficult, not because we're doing it wrong, not because we made a mistake. What are you going to do? That's life. What are you going to do is you're going to grieve, and then you're going to pick up and do the next thing. When he got old and uh, 
really old, in, into his 90s. And his mind stayed every bit awake until he died, actually of oldness at 98. Uh, when he was really old, and we talked about the fact that he would die, and he said, you know, uh, this is what I feel very good about dying. He said, well, after I die, I'll be able to think that no one is left ever thinking a bad thing about me. That he lived with absolute impeccable morality. It was tremendously important to him to be honest and just really impeccable in all of his business negotiations. And I thought to myself, again, in terms of what we know about Dharma, that I think he did it because, we pay atten- because he paid attention, because he was very carefully mindful of his whole life. I think we teach a lot about morality being a condition for mindfulness, because the mind is relaxed when we live in that way, it's also the result of mindfulness. That when we see clearly the amount of suffering in the world, we don't want to make it any worse by adding one drop of pain or suffering to an already desperately suffering condition. He's an impeccably moral man. I like to think that he experienced uh, what the Buddha would call would have called the bliss of blamelessness. And he enjoyed that, not because he was frightened about not doing the right thing, but because he wanted to. It gave him a lot of pleasure. The third statement that he made, which uh, I've been thinking about quite a lot, is he would also sometimes uh, make this in response to challenge when he'd be really disturbed by something that was going on and called upon to respond in the way that he would have most liked to respond, he would take a breath in again, and he'd say, I'm translating from the Yiddish here, he would say, it's really hard to be a person. (laughs) And uh, I I take that as having at least two meanings. Uh, one of the one of the meanings again is a, it's a rephrasing of the first noble truth. It's really hard to be a person. Everything happens to you in a life, sooner or later. We get parted from everything that we love. We have plans; they don't happen. We have plans one way; it doesn't come to pass. We're sure it will. It won't. It comes to pass. It isn't what we wanted. <laughs> it's very hard to be a person and stay comfortable. I think that's one meaning of it's hard to be a person. And the other meaning, particularly since the word he used for person is mensch, it means a decent person. It's very hard to be a decent person because it's so easy to become annoyed and to become vengeful and to become so grief-stricken that you take it out on other people or you say, just for that, I'm doing it back to you. It's very hard to, in the, in challenged, challenged by the normal things of life, to remain an incredibly decent person. But it's a possibility, and that's what's so great about being a human being. One of the things that I've been thinking about, this is sort of a parenthetical thing, but I wanted to say it because it's it's been on my mind. uh, Anyway, here it is. I've been incredibly grateful for the Internet uh, since these last two months of troubles because all of a sudden, all of my friends have reached out and touched each other 
way more than normal, probably yours, um, in sharing their wisdom and other people's wisdom shared with them. You've probably all gotten forwarded emails from somebody who clearly sent them to a listserv so that you know that a lot of people got them. But I have enjoyed enormously knowing that I'm on so many people's listservs. And each of those emails that tell me, do you want to know what Bill Moyers said? Do you want to know what this one said? Do you want to know what the other one said? Have been like love letters. They've been uh, courage makers. They've been saying, Sylvia, I'm thinking about you. There is a way to be. Here's another hint for it. On the night of September 11th, uh, when I got home late that evening, I already had begun to get messages from all over the place. And the message that I've been carrying with me and talking about a lot since then has been one particular message that went this way. It said, uh, here are three things that you can do right now. You can pray for the people who died. You can pray for the people they left behind. And you can pray that your heart stays open. And that particular last instruction has been really so important to me. It becomes more profound every time I think about it. I think it's pregnant with meaning. I think, uh, pray that your heart stays open means that it already is. Really goes back to the lesson of last night, that the nature of our hearts, the nature of our very being is by itself just loving. Don't have to cultivate that. We are compassionate beings when we're not frightened or overwhelmed, confused. Pray that your heart stays open means that it's the nature of the human heart, for which I am very grateful. That it's our natural inclination to take care of each other. It's part of the metta sutta. And when I think of the natural inclination, I think it's built into the DNA that we know how to take care of. We nurture our babies. Mothers and fathers take care of their babies. Built into the very structure of the genetic code. It always uh, touches me to think how whales know to swim on the side of baby whales to protect them from the waves so that they can get born and start swimming and eat and live and swim by themselves. And it's built into them to shelter the baby whale from the side from which the waves are coming. It's in our nature to be caring. The Metta Sutta says, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. I think we do. I think it's written into us. I think we get overwhelmed. There's a line from a Shakespeare sonnet that um, the line is life piled on life. Sometimes it seems to be happening so fast we just finish handling this and then here's this and we finish handling that and then here's this. It's like hard to keep your head above water sometimes. And I know from talking to you in interviews here that so many of you said, finally, I'm on retreat. I can take a breath. And lives are difficult. It was really uh, 
taken the other night when Sally said we live in interesting times and making the point that we've always lived in interesting times. Life is interesting. It's difficult, complicated, challenging, interesting. Maybe we tend to think that now the pace has picked up, but maybe everyone always thought the pace was picked up. Maybe it's the condition of life to be continually challenged and the condition of arts to continually be able to rise to the occasion, to do things twice as fast. This is a piece of a poem from uh, Yehuda Amichai. It's an Israeli poet. He died in the year 2000. Called A Man Doesn't Have Time. A man doesn't have time to have time for everything. He doesn't have seasons enough to have a season for every purpose. Ecclesiastes was wrong about that. A man needs to love and to hate at the same moment, to laugh and to cry with the same eyes, with the same hands to cast away stones and to gather them, to make love and war and war and love, and to hate and forgive and remember and forget and to set in order and confuse, to eat and to digest what history takes years and years to do. A man doesn't have time. What he loses, he seeks. When he finds, he forgets. When he forgets, he loves, and when he loves, he begins to forget, and his soul is very experienced. His soul is very professional. Only his body remains forever an amateur. It tries and it misses, gets muddled, doesn't learn a thing, drunk and blind in its pleasures and its pain. He will die as figs die in autumn, shriveled and full of himself and sweet, the leaves growing dry on the ground with bare branches already pointing to the place where there's time for everything. I find that quite stunning. We have to do everything at the same time and make lots of space for it. I think the space that we make doesn't require time. I think the space that we make is the practice of paying attention. You can have lots of things happening all at the same time. In the space of an awakened mind, and an open heart, there is the space to know what's happening and what's required. I think we can live impeccably beautiful, compassionate, connected lives in all of our times. And I think it's not so hard to keep your heart open. Thinking of that prayer, pray to have your heart open. I think it's such a part of us as human beings that we get startled and we feel, oh, I'm all closed up in myself, but I don't think it's so hard to keep your heart open. I think when we hear a story about somebody, even we don't know them. They don't have to be John Kennedy. They don't even have to be my grandfather. These are some stories of people who died on September 11th in the World Trade Center. Luis Bautista was one of the people who died. It was his birthday. He had the day off from Windows on the World, the restaurant high atop the World Trade Center. But back home in Peru, his family depended on Luis for the money he had been sending them since he arrived in New York two years ago, speaking only Spanish. And there was a tuition he would soon be paying to study at John Jay College of Criminal Justice so on the 11th of September, Luis Bautista was putting in overtime. He was 24 years old. William Steckman was 58. 
For 35 of those years, he took care of the NBC One transmitter at the World Trade Center, working the night shift because it let him spend time during the day with his five children and to fix things up around the house. His shift ended at 6 a.m. on the morning of September 11th, but that morning his boss asked him to stay on to help install some new equipment, and William Stackman said sure. Elizabeth Holmes lived in Harlem with her son, jogged every morning around Central Park. She was a Baptist. She sang in the choir at the Canaan Baptist Church. She was expecting a ring from her fiancé at Christmas. Linda Luzioni and Frank Gerhardt were engaged. They had both had sets of parents. Both of their sets of parents came to New York in August to meet for the first time and talk about the wedding plans. They had discovered each other in nearby cubicles on the 104th floor of One World Trade Center, and they had fallen in love. They were working there when the terrorists struck. Manjan Bulai came from Albania. Because his name was hard to pronounce, his friends called him by the Cajun Jambalai, and he grew up to like it. He lived with his three sons in the Bronx, and he was supposed to have retired when he turned 65 a year ago. But he was so attached to the building, and he so enjoyed the company of the other janitors, that he often showed up an hour before work. He continued to work. He did not retire. And he often came an hour early to work, to hang around with his friends and talk. Fred Sheffold liked his job. He was the chief of the 12th Battalion in Harlem. He loved going to fires and he loved his men. He never told his daughters who lived in the suburbs about the bad stuff and all the fires that he had fought over the years. He didn't want to worry them. On the morning of September 11th, his shift had just ended and he was starting home when the, world, when the alarm rang. He jumped into the truck with the others and at the World Trade Center, he pushed through the crowds to the staircase, heading for the top. That was the last time anyone saw him. When you hear those stories, I, when I read them, my hair stands on end when I read them. I don't know those people, but I feel their lives because we know how it is to love and to hope and to have plans and to be counting on a future. We want it for us. We want it for our children. We want it for our grandchildren. We feel lives because they're lives just like ours. There used to be a radio program years ago that was, I think, some sort of crime program, and they would tell a whole plot, and they would, and they would say at the end, this is a real story. Only the names have been changed to protect the anonymity of the people in it. Those are all our stories. Only the names have been changed in the places. Because we all have things that we do and passions. I think when we hear those stories, we think it could be us. And in a certain way, it is us. It's us in another form right now. But we're doing the same thing in whatever way we're doing it. Think about the sense of... uh, spiritual urgency that Guy mentioned last night, 
when we really realize that every sentence that begins two weeks from now or next year or I have in mind to sometimes is a complete conjecture. It's a fantasy. It might happen. doesn't mean that we shouldn't make plans. But really, the only time we can do anything is right now. I was thinking as well about the phrase, the tides of karma that keep pulling us. Tides of karma are so strong. If we have in our intention to overcome those tides of karma, there isn't a moment to lose because we only have this moment right now. Someone told me a story yesterday morning at breakfast. I ate down at the yurt and somebody said, this happened to me on uh, last Mother's Day, on the day before Mother's Day, I called my mother, this person said, and I had a very difficult relationship with my mother. This person is a grown person, and her mother is an elderly woman, and, her, and this person who told me the story, her children are grown. She said, my mother is a difficult person, and our relationship has been difficult. Last year, on the day before uh, Mother's Day, I suddenly had, I was inspired to call my mother and say, what are you doing tomorrow? My mother was not doing anything, and I was inspired to say, Mom, I'll spend the day with you. I said, I picked her up, and we just hung out. And my daughter worked in Taco Bell. I took my mother to Taco Bell. We ate tacos. And then we went to my sister's house, and I hung out at my sister's house with my mother. And I took my mother home. We had a good day. And uh, two weeks later, my mother had a cerebral aneurysm, and she died. And she said, you know, I was really glad that I had done that. Imagine the serendipity of that. Imagine the good fortune of having gotten in that reparation right before literally the deadline for it. And when I hear that story, I think to myself, we never know when the deadline is. We are living in a life without deadlines. It makes for me such an urgency to be sure that I do not have any outstanding reparations that have to be made. There isn't a time other than now to make it. I'm pretty sure that fairly soon someone will publish an anthology of all of the recorded conversations that they were all in the newspapers in the days following September 11th of the phone calls that people made from the World Trade Center or from those airplanes. Everybody said the same thing. They said, I love you. Take care of yourself. Take care of the children. Tell them that I love them. That's all that anybody said. All the other things that we're likely to say to people, I wish you had done this, I wish you had changed it. (laughs) Maybe the only thing there is ever to say to anybody is I love you. Everything else is extra. It's beside the point, and it's not helpful. I was very touched by the the phone calls in which people, having realized that their escape routes were blocked, called and said, I don't think I'm going to get out of here alive. And I love you, take care of yourself, take care of the children. We are none of us going to get out of here alive. The people who made that phone call knew it in a way 
that we forget way too often. We have the capacity of human, as human beings to remember that that is absolutely true all the time. And we have the hearts that could stay open all the time if we actually, actually took that into the marrow of our bones. It's the only thing we're meant to learn. That's the spiritual urgency. And James spoke the other night. He talked about uh, forgiveness and patience and a, a sense of lightness, which I mean for you to have from what I'm saying. I don't find this depressing. I find it tremendously inspiring. It's like someone say, hurry up, wake up. And a sense of incredible awe and wonder. We don't know when the deadline is. The deadline is now, always, because there is never any time that we can do anything except now. The Buddha said um, we ought to practice as if our hair was on fire. Somebody once told me, do you really like that metaphor? It's so. I do. I do. Because if our hair was on fire, it would really catch our attention. It is on fire. <laughs> In a certain way, it is on fire. It's that urgent. If our hair was on fire, we'd do something about it. Now we would do it. And now is the only time that ever is. Here's the story that you probably all know. Once upon a time, a Zen monk, it's a good Zen story, once upon a time, a monk was walking along uh, peacefully and suddenly along the edge of a cliff, nearby to a cliff, and suddenly a tiger ran out from the jungle, ran after him. He had no egress from that situation other than towards the cliff. He ran to the cliff. tiger was right behind him. He had no recourse other than leaping over the cliff. Down, there was a huge ravine and rocks and rivers below. But fortunately for him, there was a vine hanging over the edge of the cliff, and he grasped the vine and hung on to the vine. And he looked up, and the tiger was looking down and growling at him. And he looked down, and there was a river and boulders, and it was away far below him. And I think about that, and I think we're in exactly the same position as that monk hanging. The whole of our life has happened already before us. The whole of the rest of our life is waiting for us. We are dangling in between. As he is dangling, a mouse comes out, starts creeping along the vine, and starts to gnaw at the vine. At that very moment, that monk notices that from a small crack in the cliff in front of him, there's a little plant growing out, and there's a strawberry growing on that plant. And he picks the strawberry, and he eats it, and he says, this is a very good strawberry. That's the story. (laughs) You get it. Here's the story. Uh, when I left, I, when, I, I, when my husband and I married, which is uh, 
almost 47 years ago, we uh, left Brooklyn where all of our relatives lived. Brooklyn and New York City, maybe the Intrepid in New Jersey, but everybody lived right there. And we went to Kansas, which as far as my family was concerned was on the moon. And uh, we developed the habit because they wanted to feel connected to us. People can go back and forth that didn't take planes like we now take planes in those days. So we developed the habit every year on Rosh Hashanah when we sent out greeting cards, Happy New Year to the family, to take a family photo and send it to the family. So we had lots of, we all, we had four parents. I even had a grandparent at that time. And we had lots of aunts and uncles and cousins. And so it became a, a family thing. We did that every year. And then as time went by, we had children. So every year there were more people in the picture than there were three people and four people and five people, six people. And then a lot of years went by and we didn't have more people, but everybody in the photo every year got bigger and older. And then by and by, all of our people began to choose people to spend their lives with, so we got more people in the photo. And then they had children, so we got more people in the photo. So what had previously been a very simple maneuver of saying, let's step out in the backyard and take a picture, became a more complicated thing because you had to arrange with people, even that all my family lives nearby, to get them all at the same time and in the same place and dressed appropriately and in a good mood was, <laughs> it, it got to be a big production. So last year, we took the picture just under the wire for sending the cards. And the next morning, I took this whole roll of film and I went to the photo store and I, I gave the instructions and I said, I need to have these developed right away because I need to pick the best one so I can have copies of it made to put in my cards. So I went out for a ride on my bike for an hour, one hour photo developing. I came back an hour later. There are the photos. I look at them. I spread them out on the, on the counter. And they were really good. They were really good. There was one particular one where everybody was smiling. I was, was really excited about it. And I picked it out. And the salesperson said, how many do you need? And I realized I didn't need any. That all the people to whom we had for all those years sent cards were gone. I long don't have a grandfather. We long don't have parents. All of our aunts and uncles are gone. Some distant cousins, but everybody was gone. I thought to myself, I was really surprised. I was a little embarrassed. I had just an hour before told her I need these with some urgency. And so I looked down and I saw all these photos and I thought, uh, I said, you know, so many of these are good. I think I have enough without copies. I just, this will do, this will be fine. I thought a little bit about, well, I have two cousins and uh, my husband has a few cousins, maybe, and my in-laws, now my children's in-laws, now they would be interested in seeing my family, so my children's in-laws, I counted up, well, all right, there are those. And I realized that I was struggling very hard to get the last bit of pleasure out of an event that just wasn't happening anymore. And that the struggle was really making it painful. So I got together my photos and I was going across the parking lot, going back to my car, feeling very dispirited. First of all, feeling sort of 
embarrassed with myself for having made such a production number about an event that by orchestrating a, a, an event without a cause, so to speak. And um, where could I have been? I thought all of those people didn't die last week, or even last year. <laughs> How come I didn't notice that they all dis- disappeared? How come I didn't notice that if all goes well, I am actually the next in line for departing? I hope it goes well. That's the only way that I would like it to happen. Nobody to send to. Where did I not... How did I miss that teaching on impermanence? So, I was on my way to my car, feeling quite dispirited, and I suddenly realized, I was telling myself a story, and the story was confusing. The story was, where were you? How come you didn't see that? You don't have so much insight. A person like you should have more insight. I was feeling very tired. Look, you're tired. You're old. <laughs> Suddenly, I realized those are all just stories. They were all just stories. I thought to myself, thing is, I'm a little tired, but I, I'm a little tired because I'm startled. I'm old, but I'm alive. I realized I'm alive. And I realized this is my opportunity. I turned around, went back to the photo store, and I went through my photos and I picked out the one that I really liked. And I said, I found the same salesperson, and I said, I'd like an 8 by 10 of this photo. And she was making out the slip for it. And she looked up in the middle of making it out, and she said, uh, 8 by 10? And I said, no, 11 by 14. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, uh, you sure? <laughs> and I said, yes, this is a really good photograph. It's the same. There is only now. Now is the only time that we're alive. Now is the only time that we can do anything. Now is the only time that we can eat the strawberry, celebrate the photograph, tell people you love them, tell the people that you've hurt that you're sorry, repair every broken bridge, You don't want to have any leftover homework because you don't know if you're going to have time to do the homework. You want to end up with the bliss of blamelessness. When James talked about those four attitudes that support practice, keeping the heart open and the mind buoyant, He talked the longest about forgiveness, probably because it's the hardest of them, and maybe the most important. It's what really stays as the last story that gets in the way of seeing clearly and loving completely. When we see clearly, when our minds are clear, we are very selfless, we're very good, We pay very good attention. It's, I think, when we pay very good attention, when we're the least preoccupied with ourselves, that even under desperate circumstances, the lovingness that is our very nature manifests itself. 
My friend uh, Tamara is a mindfulness teacher in New York and uh, also a psychotherapist. And uh, on the morning of September 11th, as soon as she heard that what had happened, she went to the nearest Red Cross Center, which is a block and a half from where she lives, and registered to go and be with, to do us, to give whatever she could do. She said, I came to make myself available to talk to people, to console people. And there were centers sprung up overnight. She said the next day she was assigned to Shea Stadium, big athletic stadium in uh, Queens. And uh, she said it had been set up overnight with a thousand beds, um, cots, um, impromptu hospital for people, uh, mostly for the people serving on the site of the catastrophe, the fire personnel and the police personnel to have time to sleep and rest and come off duty and go there. And she said they took her in a special bus because there was no um, transport over the bridges. She said, but they waited all day and they had a thousand beds and hardly anyone came because, and they'd keep making announcements and they'd say, a bus is coming, a bus is coming, get ready. And there were other aid workers there. She said, by the way, the Red Cross filled up. By the time she was there, everybody else who had something to give was there volunteering. She said they waited and they said, bus is coming, that it wouldn't come, a bus is coming, it wouldn't come. And finally, what became clear, they made announcements, is that they couldn't get people off the lines, that people would not leave, they would not take respite time, that people would go, the, the police and the fire personnel would go two blocks away, lie down on the sidewalk, sleep for an hour or two, and go back that they really refused to leave, that they couldn't leave. She said somehow they managed. They slept a little and got up and went back into that disaster. So she, when we spoke the next day, she said, um, I want to tell you, I want to talk to you about this because um, I have to talk a little bit more about it. I need more debriefing. She said the Red Cross debriefs people. She said, but it's overwhelming. So. She told me all those stories and some more stories about the heroism. And she said, now I want to read you some haikus I've written. And she read me some haikus she'd written about the experience. I'll read you one of them. But when she finished reading the haikus and she said, let's write some together now. And we wrote some on the phone together. And the practice of writing the haikus brought some balance to the moment. I think we reminded each other in that moment that in the middle of stunning catastrophe, the human heart can say, okay, I can do something creative now. I think that's the answer to why we felt better. Because that's what the whole world is going to have to do now. It's in a very terrible condition. It's going to have to say, okay, we can do something better now. We can create something new out of this very, very difficult time. So here's the haiku that Tamara wrote. This is hers. Adrenaline pumping the milk of human kindness 24-7. I think that's what it is. 
just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. It is the capacity of the human mind and heart to open itself fully to suffering and respond with compassion, adrenaline pumping the milk of human kindness 24-7. What we're doing here together, always, by paying attention, is connecting with the passions in life, the joys, the pains, the longings, ours and everyone else that we intuit as being the whole of humanity doing this life with us. Knowing that in the connecting, letting go of our separate selves and feeling our connections to each other is the freedom that we all so fervently desire. It's by being willing as we are to love fully and to grieve. In a letter from St. Paul to the Colossians, he said, I rejoice in my suffering with you. I so clearly understand that as not meaning I'm pleased that you suffer, I'm happy that you suffer, but I rejoice in my ability to feel your suffering. I'm grateful for a human heart. This is a poem from the Andalusian poet Adi Alrega. I was sleeping and being comforted by a cool breeze when suddenly a gray dove from a thicket sang and sobbed with longing, reminding me of my own passion. I had been away from my own soul so long, so late sleeping, But that dove's crying woke me and made me cry. Praise to the early waking grievers. I'd like for us to uh, sit for five minutes now and do a practice together. close your eyes and feel your body. Feel what it is to be alive. We are alive right now. You can tell it. Apart from the fact that you're breathing, but the fact that you can feel yourself sitting. This very practice of bringing attention to the moment. You can tell that you're sitting without your eyes open. You can tell it because there's more pressure on your bottom than there would be if you were standing. You can tell from the pressures in your body, whether you're sitting on the floor or on a chair. You can tell where your face is and your hands are without having your eyes open, without looking. If you feel with all of your awakened attention the whole of this extraordinary energy body. 
can feel where your edges of your body are, the shape of you. And you feel yourself breathing. We'll use just as a reference for these few minutes of sitting quietly. Perhaps a a slight change in that prayer that my friend offered me on the internet. Pray that your heart stays open. Acknowledge that your heart is open. Think of the people that you love. What I do at a time like this is I recite the names to myself. We can do it quietly today. I'll ring a bell. I ring the bell. Make a list in your mind. Say it to yourself. Of all the people to whom you feel connected, whom you love, This could be the preface to the names. It's like signing a card, making a statement. I love you. Take care of yourself. Take care of the children. Have a good life. I'll ring the bell and say the names to yourself in your heart. There's never enough time to get in your whole list. Perhaps for the practice for the rest of the day, when you sit here, eat your lunch, walk around, you can continue your list. For our last minute together, let's all of us communally think of all the people in the world whose names we don't know, who are for any reason at all, grieving today. 
And with the compassion, that's really the context of our natural heart, birthright of a human birth, for which I know we are all grateful. We can wish for them, may your suffering be eased. May you also have a cause for thanksgiving. Let's sit for a minute. May all beings everywhere feel that peace that fills the heart with gratitude. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 22, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.